Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Today, I just want to talk about things that I've read about and things that I've read about that I see reflected back to me in this current situation that we find ourselves in. And uh, what that situation is varies depending on who you're talking to, uh, depending on where they get their information from, their uh, level of trust, their... um, their happiness levels. Um, what's interesting is you can go so many different directions now. You know, uh, one of them, the one that uh, you know, certain forces are pushing you in, is the direction of isolation and looking at human beings as these vessels for disease. You know, if if you're looking at a, a human being and they are vibrant and healthy and you can tell they obviously take care of themselves but now they could be sick with the worst disease that has ever hit the human population in a century just think about that you know i think previous in previous pandemics did we has there ever been a non-symptomatic uh sick person in the history of pandemics you know were people afraid that the flu was spreading uh back in you know 1916 or whatever 1918 whenever the spanish flu was or was it obvious you know were there signs of it the fact that we have one where you can be as healthy as humanly possible and still be considered a threat Uh, a viral threat is uh, something to reflect on, something to consider. And that's why I want to talk about the nature of evil today because I don't really do evil pop culture anymore. And for a long time, that's all I would focus on. My whole attention was focused on documentaries about true crime podcasts about true crime and I'm talking about back to back to back just listening to the most egregious tales of murder and violence and you know petty revenge and all the nastiness that humanity has to offer seem to be on my playlist and I think it does provide you with a cortisol addiction you know, the same way that pornography will provide you with the dopamine addiction, right? Tricking your brain into thinking that you just had a sexual conquest. The true crime, the stressful true crime when your mirror neurons are firing off on the idea of somebody being, you know, bound, tortured, and killed um, either in a fictional Netflix bingeable show or uh, a book but my bookshelf was full of books like that. Um, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it. Uh, it's some stories are meant to be told and some of them are cautionary tales and we can learn something absolutely from the most horrifying stories that we can gather, but there's a limit. And after a while it just becomes, I don't know, fear porn disaster porn I think there is one more force at work there and it's the idea 
that we're safe and the per- we're safe listening to the tale of horror. You know, we're safe behind our uh, the walls of our house or in our car, and we're listening to some story about a person who was exposed, some person who was violently um, murdered. You know, and it gives us a feeling of oh, we're not we're not there. You know, we're not in this horrible situation. And I don't know, it's kind of a weird thing that people do, but I I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that either. Um, But anyway, the nature of evil, which I am, I and many other people are very familiar of, uh, with, because I think it's like your average American teenager has seen like 10,000 depictions, and I'm kind of just being a little hyperbolic there, but has seen thousands of depictions of murder in their life. Uh, simulated, obviously. Simulated, obviously, unless they be, unless they are, you know, unfortunate enough to be in an actual shooting or something like that, or, you know, witness to a horrible, horrible car accident or something like that. But the average American teenager has already witnessed thousands of simulated murders and probably hundreds if not dozens maybe of simulated rapes sexual assaults stuff like that so we're all experts on evil but I think we still somehow forget true evil and I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of evil happening and it's not coming in the, the, the form of a, a drone flying over your house and blowing up your neighborhood. It's not coming in the form of you being bound to a chair um, and, and tortured. You know, none of that. It's not a home invasion. But the evil we're seeing is trauma. It is giving people secondary trauma, especially children. And there's a book, I think it's called The Myth of Sanity, and it goes into primary and secondary trauma. And primary trauma is something we're all familiar with. If you do get into a car accident, um, you get hit head on, you know, and you walk away and, uh, you know, you, you put your bones in casts and you heal and eventually you're back in your car. Well, you might have a little bit of post-traumatic stress disorder when you get in that car and start it up and go cruising down the highway, right? You've experienced primary trauma and that can lead to post-traumatic stress. So uh, in this book, she talks about secondary trauma. Secondary trauma is kind of the hidden, glossed over trauma that afflicts us, right? That that can make us less trusting of our authority figures, that can trigger anxiety in us. And, you know, we have all this talk about people being triggered by certain things. I'm not talking about this virtue signaling type of trauma where it's like, oh, I turned on the TV and 
I saw a skinny person and that made me feel dramatic because I'm, I'm overweight. You know, I'm not talking about this, bu- this, this bullshit that is saturating our society now. And maybe this real trauma is getting lost in some of this stuff. And that might be an evil tactic that certain forces are taking, right? It's like, make sure, you know, make the smallest, most mundane things into traumatic experiences for a population and then we'll gloss over the actual trauma. It's like, I think it was, uh, it was Jada Pinkett Smith that said when she saw blonde woman, women, she would be triggered. I don't know what the fuck that means. Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about. But secondary trauma. So the author gives this example in the book of secondary trauma. And I'm tying this to what we're doing now with muffling kids, with putting masks on kids. So just know that. So picture a child on the bus and he's second day of school, third day of school. He's, all, he's got the routine on the bus down by now. And he's on the bus and the school bus driver pulls over at his what he thinks is his stop. And maybe he's just kind of excited from school that day. Maybe he's got to... Oh, wait, no, kids are never excited about school now anymore. Uh, but whatever. Um, so he gets off the bus. He thinks it's his stop. And he hears those bus doors kind of hiss close behind him. And he turns around and sees the bus go. And just as he sees the bus go, he realizes that he got off on the wrong stop. You know, this second grader. And he looks around and realizes that he got off on the wrong stop. And about an hour later, his mom comes and picks him up. At uh, She had been down the street and realized that he didn't get off the bus. So she semi-worried, got in her car, went up the street uh, around the blocks. And she found him. And he's there and he's crying. And he's, you know, he's sitting on the curb and he's bawling. And his mom grabs him and comforts him and then brings him into her car and they drive away. And the mom's kind of, you know, uh, brushing him off. Brushing him off that, that you know, things are going to be okay. It's no, no reason to freak out. And uh, she kind of laughs it off. And maybe she tells uh, it as more of a funny story uh, later on to a friend or something. So imagine that scene. And then the author will have us rewind, right? And we'll go more from the child's point of view. So this child gets off this authority figure as the bus driver um, allows him to get off the bus. And he sees the bus pull away. And he realizes that he's in the wrong part of town. And everything looks really unfamiliar to him. All of a sudden, his entire world, you know, of... You know, I get off the bus, I walk home. His entire world has has shifted. And he's alone. And loneliness, when it comes to a kid, isolation, finding yourself in unknown territory is extremely traumatic because in his brain, you know, in his, his survival brain, his lizard brain, that's a death sentence, right? To find yourself a child alone in hostile territory. So he doesn't know what he should do. He doesn't see anyone. There, maybe there's a, you know, some strange adult 
uh, you know, out outside in their front yard, and the kid doesn't know what to do. Should he talk to this guy? Uh, but he shouldn't talk to strangers. Um, he has no idea which way to go. He's completely lost, and he starts crying, and he thinks that uh, all is lost in the world. And then finally his mom pulls up, and he's, he's, in, he's in tears, and he's, you know, beside himself, and she kind of just blows him off. That would be an idea of secondary trauma. These things that happen to us that are unseen, you know, a, a child's mind trying to grasp the idea that he's, he's lost, you know, that the world is now a threat. And so I'll tie this to one more story, okay? Because I want to end this with a little bit of homework that we can do. I'm not telling anyone to violate any laws or mandates. I'm not asking anyone to get anyone else exposed in any way, even though I, you know, where I stand with all this. But once I was behind a bus of kids, uh, young kids, maybe second or third grade, maybe the same age as our our kid who got off the bus and had his world collapse because he didn't know where he was, didn't know who she, who she, who he should talk to, thought he's lost forever, he's never going to get home, and the world is scary, and he's vulnerable. But I got behind a bus of kids, and I just made eye contact with the kid, and uh, he kind of looked at me, and I looked at him, and I gave him a funny face. You know, I give him a big, a goofy face. And then I kind of snapped my face back into, you know, normal, just kind of like a stoic look on my face, a stoic expression. And he laughed. And then I held that stoic expression and then I would quickly bust into a goofy face and back into a stoic face, right? And he starts laughing more and then he kind of waves over his friends in the back of the bus. And a couple of his friends come over and they're looking at me and I'm giving the stoic face and I can see him telling his friends like, no, 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 watch, watch, he's gonna do a goofy face. And then I do the quick goofy face and then I go back to the stoic face and then he, like all the kids start laughing and busting up. And then by the end of, by the time the light turned green, there's a crowd of kids watching me do this face, right? And so what happens, right? You got this adult behind, behind him, you know, in a car and we make eye contact. And what's an adult to a kid? This is what we all are forgetting here right now. What is a six foot, 170 pound grown man with a beard to a child? Well, either a friend, right? Or neutral, probably. But a potential threat, right? Kids are tiny, little, feeble things and they recognize that you know do we do we forget so much how adults in our lives when we're children are gods from I mean especially our parents they feed us right they tell us what to do they tell us how to navigate this world they tell us what's true they tell us what is lies they set us up for success failure or in unfortunate cases they traumatize us how can they traumatize us? Size. Size. Knowledge and size. Muscle mass. Bone density. 
So this kid looked at me and I gave him a goofy face and what did I do? I immediately made it so he knew I was not a threat at all. Now when you're walking around with a mask on, it's impossible for a kid to know whether or not this adult is a threat. Especially if, you know, his parent isn't making any sort of gesture towards that adult that is friendly, you know? The same way dogs look to their owner to see whether or not a person is a threat or not. And by the way, people are like, oh, if my dog doesn't like you, I don't trust you. That's not what's happening. Your dog is picking up on your vibe. So if your dog doesn't like someone, it's because he's smelling on you that you hold some sort of fear towards this person. That you don't trust this person. And in the same way, kids are the, kids are the exact same way, you know? Kids are puppies in a lot of ways. Um, so homework assignment that you can do in this twisted mask world that we live in. If you see a child, okay, very simply, pull down your face covering. If you still have to stay six feet away, stay six feet away. All right, if you don't want to, you're not going to expose the kid. Pull down your face covering and at least give the kid a smile. Give the kid a big smile that says, the world that you're seeing is not a threat, okay? The world that you're seeing, which I exist in, is not a threat. Give a kid a big smile, all right? And then you can put your mask back on. And actually, you could make the same sort of game over it that I did, all right? If you really want to go for it, if you really want to tell the children that this world isn't some twisted hellscape of an anonymity, facial anonymity, then pull down your mask and make him a funny face, a goofy face. Do it a couple times. See if you can get the kid to laugh. See if you can disarm a child with humor. And uh, I did want to get into a bunch of other stuff, but I kind of went over uh, how far I wanted to go here. So I'll do another one on uh, the nature of evil. But to the four-person audience, uh, I read the analytics. To my four-person audience, thank you for listening to this. Um, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope that you're getting something from it. Because I've read a lot of books and I want to convey... uh, I've listened to a lot of lectures and I want to convey uh, as much information as I can. So uh, give the kid a goofy grin or just a nice smile and then, you know, if you have to, put your mask back on. God bless.